Wow, I am exhausted. It's been a long night in Georgia. Georgia is on my mind. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Uh, if you hear some weariness in my voice, it's because we've had long nights. We've been toiling in the vineyard for a long time. But finally, the sun cometh in the morning. And a special thank you to my Georgia voters for giving us a Senate majority. Congratulations to Senator-elect Ossoff and my Morehouse brother and one of our former guests, Reverend Senator-elect Raphael Warnock. There are so many people and organizations that I could give shout-outs to in Georgia, from my Spelman sisters Stacey Abrams and Bianca Keaton, to Mayor Bottoms in Atlanta, to organizations like the New Georgia Project in Fair Fright, and my friends over at the Black Voters Matter Project, Clift Albright, and Latasha Brown. What we saw in Georgia was nothing short of amazing, but also the culmination of over a decade of organizing. For my friends across the Deep South, Georgia is an instructive lesson in what happens when you put the time and effort into organizing an electorate, as opposed to the more traditional model of political organizing centered around candidates. Let's invest in ourselves, and when the right candidate emerges, they'll win, not the other way around. My hope is that after Georgia, national donors, the Democratic Party and its campaign committees and philanthropic organizations see the South for truly what it is. And that's a sleeping giant. If activated, could work to ensure that Republicans remain a permanent minority in our national politics. We also saw, again, the power of black voters firsthand and what happens when you give voters candidates they see themselves in and you empower and invest in homegrown talent to do what they already know how to do. From South Carolina's role in nominating Joe Biden to black voters across the country that helped deliver the president-elect's victory, to now black voters in Georgia flipping the Senate, this administration and this next Congress needs to pay black voters what they owe. The check is due, and now Mitch McConnell is no longer an excuse. And that's that on that. Now on to a show with my South Carolinian fellow sister, Dr. Ebony Hilton. And welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I am exhausted because, as many of you all have seen, I've been pulling these uh, the the West Coast prime time hours, which is twelve to three a.m. And but today, I wanted to have a special episode, e- even with everything going on in Georgia, with my sister from Little Africa, South Carolina, Ebony Jade Hilton. What's going on? How are you? Life is good. How's it going for you? It's going good. For each of our guests, we start the conversation by having them walk us through the arc of their career. Tell me how you get from Little Africa, South Carolina, to now being an associate professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. Right. Um, I tell everybody it's by the grace of God, because honestly, (laughs) I feel like there has been a stumbling on throughout the time. So I knew I wanted to be a doctor at the age of eight. My Mm -hmm. um, mom told me about the fact that their first child was actually a little boy um, that passed away when she went into preterm labor at six months. So he lived for three days and and passed away. And that in that moment made me think I want to go into medicine so I can help people not to have that type of pain. And so, yeah, went to College of Charleston, graduated there in 2004. And I triple majored there in science. um, Triple majored? Man, I majored in graduation. How did you triple major? (laughs) Listen, because I had no choice. Because again, it's one of those things I don't come from a medical family, so I needed to make sure that when I applied to med school, there's no choice but for you guys to accept me, right? So, um, yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, so I, I triple majored, and then ended up at the Medical University of South Carolina for med school residency, 
and um, and fellowship, and that was in Charleston, South Carolina, and stayed on there in 2013 um, as an anesthesiologist. Worked there for five, six years, and now I'm at the University of Virginia for the last two. So basically, I'm. I mean, I, I do admire you from afar because I took uh, I was pre-med when I went to Morehouse and I took <laughs> biology and chemistry uh, for majors. Yeah. And um, after my semester being pre-med, I finished African-American studies major. So that tells you how well uh, <laughs> that went. Well, you know, what? But that in African-American studies, if you're looking at the racial health disparities, you basically did a whole med school course. So there you go. Uh, yeah. I'm with it. I feel better about myself. Uh, right. For those people who aren't as familiar with the history of the community of Little Africa, talk to us about that for a bit. Right. So Little Africa, I am very proud of my roots. Um, Little Africa is a tiny blip on the map. But if you think about it, it was actually founded by a, um, a freed slave and a Cherokee Indian. And they, from the hop, um, they had over 500 acres of land that they bought. And I think I have so much pride because they were the type of persons that in the deep south of South Carolina, once they are free, they said, when you look at our town that we're creating, you will call it Little Africa because you can't change who we are. So, yeah, so that's the kind of person in DNA I have floating through me um, to be unapologetically <laughs> black. So, yes, Little Africa, that's South dope. Carolina. Business. You're also you're also an entrepreneur. What is Goodstock Consulting? And if there are any potential clients listening to this episode, how can someone engage Goodstock? Yeah, so Goodstock Consulting is a we are a racial health disparities firm, but truly we are agnostic to industry. And what does that mean? When we're thinking about health, we know that health is not just what happens when you walk in a hospital. Health is actually developed in the community. So what is the influence from education standpoint, from housing and, and urban development standpoint, transportation, literally all the social determinants of health. And so we help industries to say, let's look at your, your metrics. Let's look at your outcomes and determine whether or not there's a vein of equity that we need to address to help you fix the system so people can live a healthier, happier, fuller life. So it's not, I mean, it sounds like you guys are meeting this moment. And the reason I brought you on the show in particular is you have a unique perspective. And one, what we try to do is educate people about this vaccination, educate people about this pandemic that we're in. And your expertise is right on track with what we're doing. So let's do a quick COVID-19 vaccine one-on-one uh, -on -one before we drill down uh, into the vaccine rollout. Can you briefly describe the two vaccines that are currently being administered across the country? All right. So we have um, Pfizer and Moderna. and Actually, they're both quite similar in that they're mRNA vaccines. And oftentimes when I'm talking about vaccines and COVID vaccines in particular, people are really nervous since they say, oh, this thing was developed so quickly. But mRNA vaccines in themselves, they actually have been in market towards cancer and chemotherapy agents and targeting of cancerous cells prior to this. It's just that this is the first time we're using the mRNA technology to address a viral pandemic. But what, what that is, this mRNA vaccine, it basically, if I can give an analogy of a car, if we can think of a car as being a virus, there are different pieces that you can look at to say this belongs to a car, right? A steering wheel, a, a tire. The vaccine, what we're developing, um, is to recognize those different pieces of that total entity. So you may have for the mRNA vaccine, as far as a comparison, it looks at a spike protein, which is the outer coat of the virus, not the entire virus, just the coat that that virus um, wears. And so we train your body to say, if you, you see something that looks like this coat, we need you to attack it and remove it. 
So we give you the genes and the coding for that coat, right? Um, and your immune system does the rest of saying, hey, this little coat, I don't normally see this within my body. I need to form some type of, of, of response. And so now if you come into contact with someone who has COVID-19 and that entire virus carrying that coat gets within your body, your immune system is ready to fight. And I think that's a distinction that we need to make. The vaccine does not prevent you from getting infected from COVID-19. It does not prevent that. What it does hopefully prevent and what we're seeing in studies is that if you come into contact with that COVID-19 virus, that you won't have the most severe form that are leading to literally 365,000 Americans dying because your body, as soon as it sees that virus, starts to fight it off. And that's the difference. Well, I mean, that, that, see, that's why people come to the Bukhari Sellers podcast for, for information like that. Cause I, man, I just said they got different names, they got different trading symbols on, on the stock market. Are there any notable differences between the vaccines? The main difference is just storage. So I, in thinking about the differences, it's almost like Coke and Pepsi. You know, they're, they're, so no, see, now you, now, see, now my daddy listening to it and my daddy like, my daddy like, he got to get that Pepsi because it's sweeter. Listen, both of them sting when you swat, like that, it burned me. But, uh, but that being said, you know that, yes, they may taste slightly different, but they're both still sodas. The same thing with this mRNA vaccines, they're produced slightly different. They, um, their storage is slightly different, meaning that the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at really, really cold temperatures that a normal refrigerator cannot reach. Um, but that being, being said, that's really the main differences between the two, between Pfizer and Moderna. The response that your body has to both of those entities really are similar in that they are showing the same efficacy of Again, reducing your likelihood of getting that severe response if you get COVID-19 um, and the same safety profile, which is also so. Great. So let me ask you this. Why do we have to get two shots? Right. And so the clinical trials were developed to say, hey, if we're giving these two shots, what is the level of immunity? Again, what is the level of your body being able to amount this, this antibody response after the first and after the second? And what we're seeing is that you have an increased response after that second dose. Um, you can't have a response unless you had the, the first stimulus to say that this is something that you need to do. Um, and then this, uh, this vaccine in particular, what they're just seeing and, and the studies have shown is that if you have that second shot, you just have more protection of your body. Can you just get one shot? Yes. Will it be as effective? Will it have longevity of action of, of being able to boost your immune system? as if you had two studies haven't been done to show that and to verify that. And that's why at this point, we're still sticking with the way that they, they trialed it in the first place. Will the COVID vaccine be like the flu vaccine where we get it every year or will it be a one-time thing? Yeah. And that's the thing we don't know. Uh, and I know, I know that can be frustrating for the general public to, to say that we don't know, but the truth of the matter is, is that we just started getting the clinical trial final data back in the beginning of December, right? And releasing this to the general public, those clinical trial participants that were getting that vaccine in the summertime and in, in the early and mid fall, they're still tracking those persons. As a matter of fact, I was speaking to one, um, one person that was in the Moderna trial. She, her name is Nicole, uh, we met on, on Twitter, but she <laughs> told me that they are now going to bring them in on Monday to continue to do the blood work and the testing um, of their labs to see how they're responding, you know, because um, it is all about safety of the participants and safety of the people that get the vaccine. 
they need to see how your organ is kind of tolerating this and if and if there's anything untoward um, that we need to worry about. And so far, it's been so good with the hundreds of thousands of persons that were participating in these clinical trials. Who is actually administering the vaccine and why isn't everybody just able to go to like Walgreens and get it? I mean, will it be administered through a doctor's office or can I just go see my pharmacist or the lady who ring me out at the right. CVS? Right. So there's been a there's been talks of it happening in both places at universities and hospitals, but also within the communities, sports, the pharmacies, Walgreens, CVS. And I think this speaks to a bigger problem, though. When we're looking at where those pharmacies and where those hospitals are actually located, they are predominantly in white communities. And, and when I say predominantly, I mean 60 to 70 percent of all hospitals and all pharmacies are literally located in those predominantly white communities. If you're in a black or brown community, you're two times more likely to see the closure of your hospital or there not being a, a pharmacy in general. So um, mm-hmm. there's a potential there that we're going to have a disparity of access for African-American and Hispanics in general with this rollout. So two more questions as we do this COVID vaccine 101. I mean, we can just clip this. This is so dope. But uh, when we hear about mutations in the virus, what exactly does that mean? And how will the vaccine guard against future mutations? Right. So, again, this is what the beautiful thing about the mRNA vaccine is that it's looking at the coat, right? Um, The coat of this virus. And so far, the mutations that are being involved that we're seeing with these strains in South Africa and the UK, now in Florida, Colorado, California, and New York, doesn't involve that coat, right? So these mutant strains, although yes, they are definitely more infectious, and we're seeing that our cases are starting to skyrocket because of that, but the vaccine and those who are vaccinated, if you have that vaccine, that vaccine will still recognize that mutant strain to say that, hey, I don't care if you're the original COVID-19 or this the slight cousin of it, you still share that same coat. And because of that same coat, I need to get rid of you just as well as I would it. So. And I, I followed you on, on your social media journey. You've been vaccinated, right? Yes. Yes. My last I, question, do, have you lost any hair? Do you have a tail yeah. grown? Can you fly? Is there anything that's happened to you that we need to be aware of? No, you know, I was hoping that it would change my voice so I can sing, but no, um, I've been <laughs> one of those I've literally had no response. So my first vaccination shot was December the 15th. Um, my second one was actually yesterday. Um, and, and studies show that if you are going to have an immune response, and I, I need to specify on this too, that people are hearing these cases of people having headache and fevers and fatigue and muscle aches, and they're thinking that's an allergic reaction, but that's not an allergic reaction. That literally is the immune response doing what the immune response is supposed to do. It's just like when you get, if, if you do get the flu, your body aches, right? And the reason why is that your white blood cells are literally going to a fight or flight mode. It is saying that there is some virus that has come within my body that I need to use all of my energy to fight it off, which is why usually you feel like crap. You don't feel like getting out of bed. You want to just lay down because it uses a ton of energy. With this vaccine, what we are doing is we're simulating no, we're not giving you the entire virus, but we're just giving you that coat of that virus, the, the genetic makeup of what that coat would look like so that we can tell your immune system, hey, ramp up. And so for certain people in the ramping up of their immune system, they may have headaches. They may have those fevers and chills and those muscle aches. Typically, if it does happen 24 to 48 hours, 
those those two days may suck for you, um, to be honest with you. But if those two days and them sucking means that if you come into contact with COVID-19, you don't die, then they are very much worth those 48 hours. So I'm with you. Yeah. And shout out to my brother. Prayers up for my brother at down in Birmingham, Alabama, Mayor Randall Wolf and a good friend of mine, Morehouse man, SJ president before I was as of the taping of this episode, I believe he's still in the hospital in Birmingham. He got pneumonia as a result of COVID. So prayers up for for Mayor Wolf. And I wanna I wanna talk about the current state of the vaccine rollout. I just checked Bloomberg News vaccination rollout dashboard. And of the 17 million doses distributed across the country, only 5 million have actually been administered. So we're talking about 30% of the vaccines that have been distributed. Tennessee has used just over half of their allotted doses, but California has only used 23% of theirs. What's going on and why are we seeing such disparities across the states in terms of actually getting shots into people's arms? I mean, that's been the story of this entire pandemic, the lack of leadership, right? This administration that we have in place right now, there has to be a top-down um, plan and strategy and, and talking of how do we get these vaccines from the, the companies into the hands of the providers that can actually administer it. Um, and, I, and I think it speaks highly to the politicalization of this entire public health process that has failed the United States citizens. We were promised initially 20 million doses of mm-hmm. uh, vaccines within December. We haven't even hit that mark. Um, and in addition to that, like you said, we haven't even administered the amount of vaccines. And I think if we're looking, and I would and I would ask all persons on these numbers, do a deep dive to see what disparities exist even in those 5 million people that have been vaccinated. Because if we're looking at phase 1A, the persons mm-hmm. that represent that grouping are healthcare workers and also those of nursing home facilities. But what we know is that of the healthcare workers, 60% of those are whites, 16% are blacks, about 13% Hispanics. If we're looking at nursing home facilities, it costs money to pe- put people into the nursing home. 78% of nursing home facility residents, white. So we're, we're taking a pandemic of where we're having higher rates of infection and death for black and brown people. And yet the strategy of intervention is not inclusive of that and that we're not making those persons a priority of who actually gets this vaccine first. I want to do an intersection question of, of your, your profession and kind of who you are and your being. So we're going to talk about healthcare equity just briefly. I don't know if you watched, but Governor Ricketts, the Nebraska governor, says that undocumented workers um, will not be eligible to receive the COVID vaccination. So on the front, you know, I always tell people that racism usually kills black folk. But in this case, racism is killing us all. Talk about how this intersection of racism, stupidity and the vaccination are now meeting and what we should think about in terms of public policy. All right. And I'm so glad that you put stupidity in there because that's truly what this is. What we saw when black and brown people became infected, and it's particularly with our undocumented immigrants, they are a large population of those people that are literally keeping our food supply chain alive. Mm -hmm. When we were having outbreaks on these farms, for instance, we had chicken farm here in um, Virginia, and my country accent just came out, but um, of that poultry farm, when there was an outbreak there and they had to shut down, there was literally talks of 
what, what, what are we going to do with processing and being able to get meat and food and things that we need to actually sustain ourselves as, as human beings? And that's across the nation. So when we have people in Nebraska saying we're not going to vaccinate the very essential workers that we've been praising all these years or all these years, all these months um, of keeping our nation afloat, that is not only disrespectful, it should be criminal because we're causing those persons to go out and potentially get more and more infected um, and their lives are, are compromised. What we know is Hispanic Americans, only one in every six can actually work remotely from home. They are on the front line. Only one in every five African Americans can do so. And so in totality in this approach, I always say you can't have a race neutral policy that Uh-oh, you, you speak in my language i okay. always talk about that on this show you can't have race neutral policy to address race specific problems race specific ain't no such problems no okay. such thing as rising tides lift all boats fuck that <laughs> no right i mean because honestly you you can't you cannot say that and we have to start holding these officials responsible the very people that were saying no to mask and and open our our um economy and do all this are the very same people mitch mcconnell um, Lindsey Graham, Mark Rubio, Mike Pence, you are the very same people that are on the front of the line to get a vaccine, while the people who risk their lives to keep this economy floating, you're going to deny them now? It should outrage every single American when something like that is allowed to occur. You know, one of the things I hear about all the time from these individuals that you just named, explain what people mean when they use the phrase herd immunity. And what percentage of Americans do we need to have the vaccine before achieving, quote unquote, herd immunity? Because I don't really know what these words mean anymore. Right. And herd immunity is basically an excuse. That's what they're using it for. It's an excuse as to why, as Donald Trump was quoted as saying, they were OK with with young people and kids and babies being infected by this virus if it meant that they can open our economy up again. OK, um, the, the total herd immunity, what that means is if you have a circle of people and all those persons around you, because they are vaccinated, cannot pick up the virus or at least um, their, their risk of having a high viral load is lower. Then if you're in the center of that circle of people, you're protected. You're in that bubble. And what do I mean by high viral load? OK, I don't know if I should make this analogy, but it's the first thing that came to my mind. So I'm going to do it. Um, Let me think about it. Go ahead and say it and I'll tell you if we're going to edit it or not. Cocaine. <laughs> okay, cocaine. Cocaine. Oh, that's a, that's a, okay, that's a that's a usable analogy. Go ahead. Okay, okay. <laughs> cocaine is never good, right? We would never advocate for anyone to use cocaine. There's a difference if you take a little bit of cocaine or a whole bunch of cocaine. The whole bunch of cocaine can kill you immediately, right? Both of them have negative consequences, but if you get a large dose of that of that agent, you can die. That's a kind of, and, and it is not a great analogy, but that's the only way I can think to explain to people of what it means with viral load. If you get a small amount or a small introduction of a virus versus a large dose of this virus, if you're going around in these MAGA rallies, right? And these large crowds. So, so basically what you're saying is like, you know, just, you know, coming into contact with COVID is like a bump in a bathroom, but you know, you increase your viral load when you go to a MAGA rally with no mask. That's like going out like Scarface at the end of the movie. Possibly. And it's not necessarily just the fact that you're meeting thousands of people at that MAGA rally. It could be that on Monday, I meet one person who had COVID, right? And before 
I knew it because I'm not showing any signs and symptoms. On Tuesday, I went to Barnes & Noble and I pick up COVID. That multiple dosing effect, we don't know if that multiple dosing effect has an impact on whether or not you're better, worse, or the same. We don't know. Um, and there's, a, again, a lot in this pandemic that we're learning about COVID-19. Yeah. But what we do know is that there are certain persons that if they get exposed to this virus, they have no symptoms at all. And then there are other people when they get exposed to this virus, they literally are dying. And so in that in that spectrum, those are the unknowns that we're going to have to piece together. And it may take literally years, if not decades, to finally know all of the total answers. So I got just a couple more questions for you. I know you're one of the busiest and most in demand. I'm glad to see you popping up on uh, the Roland Martin show and and MSNBC, you know, there's another network over there that has has really talented people that we got to get you on. I, I, but I digress. Right. I, I want I want us to talk specifically to Black folk. We've all seen the headlines around vaccine hesitancy in our people. We all know about medical racism or the uh, bias we see in our healthcare delivery system, and how much it shaped our complex relationship with the healthcare system in this country. But what are your conversations with your non-doctor family and friends? who are on the fence about getting the vaccine and how do you pull them over? Let's just say I have somebody who lives with me. Right. Who raises my children with me. Right. Right. Who most is beautiful person in the world. Most beautiful person in the world who is hesitant about this vaccine to uh, use that loosely. Right. What would you say? Right. Well, I, I answer in two different ways. One is I address the fear and say, I understand completely Tuskegee and everything that happened with Tuskegee, literally Tuskegee was from 1932 to 1972, just 10 years before I was born. So my mother lived through that. My grandmother, the very people that I'm telling to get this vaccine, they heard the headlines. And, and even to this day, if we want to talk about Flint, Michigan. We know the government right now, we still have dirty water in Flint. We yeah. know that there are, there are injustices that happen. But let me focus on Tuskegee because that's one of the things that comes up often in the discussion. Tuskegee, the problem wasn't that they gave us a medicine. The problem was that they withheld a medicine. What do I mean by that? What they did in Tuskegee is they asked for black men. They wanted black men with quote unquote bad blood and bad blood can mean anything from black people from hypertension to diabetes. Right. But what they were actually looking for is they wanted to find men who had syphilis. And for those 40 years, they studied what does syphilis do to the developing body? Now, keep in mind, the actual cure for syphilis was founded in 1940. So for 30 more years, even though they had a medicine that could save those people's lives, they didn't give it to these black men because they wanted to see what would happen. And so of that, 28 black men died of syphilis. There was another 100 um, people that died of complications associated with it. They allowed 40 wives to be infected and 19 children to be born with congenital syphilis all because they wanted to see what mm -hmm. would happen, even though they had a cure. And that's what I don't want to happen with us Black people now. They, we, medical society, the government, has been studying why does COVID kill people all along? We finally have an intervention that can potentially prevent you from getting this virus that's in the form of this vaccine. Don't allow the government, don't allow the, the, the systems in place to prevent you from being able to get that intervention to save your life. Because that would, if we don't get the intervention, that would be Tuskegee 2.0. The other thing I tell to my black people is, if you ever wanna see if something is a good idea or not, look at the riches of people with access to everything and see what they do. And what we see is that at the first chance, 
the people who are creating the policies, the ones that are saying we're not going to give you um, $2,000 to keep your family afloat in this pandemic, the ones that are saying open up the economy and, and we're going to have these massless rallies because we want freedom. They were also the very first people that were in the front of the line to get a vaccine like Lindsey Graham before my 80 year old grandmother mm -hmm. could get hers that lives in South Carolina. So. So, yeah, follow the money, follow the power of influence and see if it was so scary, would they be the ones jumping over people to try to get that vaccine in their arms? So those are the two things. So uh, my last my last question to you, and I just want to say thank you so much because I know you I know you were extremely busy today. Oh, but great. my last question to you is, as we think about Ebony being the secretary of equity or right. uh, the Surgeon General of the United States, whatever it is, <laughs> let's say you get a call today from the president elect about how we address that hesitancy. What are the must haves in public education campaign? and a national equitable distribution strategy for the vaccine. What are you going to do? Tell me how you're going to roll that thing out. Well, the first thing first is we actually have to admit there is a problem. We have to have metrics in place that looks at and holds um, some type of a fire to the feet to say, hey, industries, hospital entities, local and state level health departments, we need you to tell us along the lines of race, gender. Um, it, we can even get down to language concordance, immigration status. Who are you actually offering these things to? If we're going to give you these medications, we need to see that equity is at the front of the line when we're talking about the distribution process. We see that that, that is still not the case across the nation of even with COVID cases of them reporting, is this person Black, White, Hispanic, Asian? What are they? That's very simple to be able to do. So for one, that. But for two, like I said, and you mentioned it, I am very big on this idea of equity needing to be not a, an afterthought, but the foundation of every policy that is formed, of which is why mm -hmm. I've been campaigning for, um, I hope the Biden administration and, and, um, and VP Kamala Harris um, take into consideration the creation of a department of equity that sits right alongside the Department of, of Housing and Education and, and all the others as much money being poured into this, this Department of Equity, that every metric that is coming out or every policy that is coming out of those other departments, we're looking at it with the equity lens to say, how are we not thinking this through? Because if we did have that, then when we're looking at phase 1A, again, of which the phase 1A, 60% of, of healthcare workers are white and 78% of nursing home um, residents are white, we would say, that's not enough. We aren't addressing equity at all because our, our black elderly people are literally being kept in their homes. And also because if we're looking at the numbers of who's dying from COVID-19, black people die at the same rate as white people who are 10 years older than us. So we are 55 years old dying from COVID-19. We are 65 years old dying from COVID-19. We are in the nursing home yet. We're, we're leaving before um, we get to the level of being a, a grandparent. And if you're looking with the equity lens, you would have picked that up. Um, but unfortunately, <laughs> the administration that we have in, in tow right now, equity is an afterthought, if a thought at all. Well, I just want to say thank you. What, what we wanted to do with this episode, we were thinking about doing a Georgia episode, but we've been talking about Georgia a lot. Um, and we talked about it with Roland Martin in the lead up. But I wanted to talk about this vaccine because I think it's important that we get this out, this information out to our community so they at least can make an educated decision. I don't, 
I'm not pushing people because I understand the hesitancy, but I do want them to make educated decisions so we can all be a healthier community. So with that, thank you for joining me. If you if you ever need anything from me or this show, uh, I'm just a phone call away. Thank you. Have a blessed day. Thank you. Have a good one. Before I let you all go, and I promised that I would always sing before I let go, I wanted to talk about one more thing, and that's Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Not sure if he's a fan of the pod, if he's listening, but if you all know him, make sure you share the pod with him. He's currently 82 years old and is the oldest member of the court and one of the three remaining Democratic appointees to the court. The conservatives have had their youth movement, and now it's time to start ours. We also know that after last night, In paying what's owed to Black Americans, it's time for the Black woman justice that President-elect promised. And we don't have to worry about Lindsey Graham as the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman to lead the confirmation. We'll now have Democratic Illinois Senator Dick Durbin leading the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I look forward to Justice Breyer's resignation letter, which I hope comes soon. Valentine's Day would be nice. King Day would actually be better. He served admirably. But now is the time to make way for another historic first, whether that be former North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Sherry Beasley, Howard University School of Law Professor Danielle Holly Walker, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, Georgia District Court Judge Leslie, this name may sound familiar, Leslie Abrams Gardner, or South Carolina District Court Judge Michelle Childs, or D.C. District Court Judge Kentanji Brown-Jackson. It's time for a black woman to join the Supreme Court. And we have a plenty to choose from. Thank you for your service, Justice Breyer. But it's time to go. And that's that on that. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. We're going to get some rest. And I'll see you on Monday. <laughs>